Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode on the Health Trip Podcast. Many midlife women that I work with and are friends with fear getting breast cancer more than heart disease. The focus on cardiovascular health is often not even listed in my clients' main health concerns. Did you know that heart disease is the number one cause of death for both women and men? Over 60 million women in the U.S. live with some form of heart disease. While there are many risk factors for women developing heart disease, which we're going to cover in this episode, one of them is the menopausal transition. All women will experience menopause, and while some develop worse symptoms than others, the door to the four horsemen of chronic disease states opens up. Alzheimer's and dementia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and type 2 diabetes. Navigating one's risk of heart disease is almost impossible in the conventional medical healthcare model, which is set up to help you after you've had a cardiac event, not prevent one. The amount of information on the topic, specifically as it relates to midlife women, is next to silent. Women are struggling to have conversations with their doctors about menopause, let alone heart health. And in doing research for to prepare for this episode, I was challenged to find articles and podcasts related to midlife women and cardiovascular disease risk, treatments, and lifestyle interventions. I found plenty in the scientific data, but my clients who are non-medical midlife women don't look there for the latest science. Most of my clients are also not having discussions about nutrition, sleep, stress management, and exercise. I'm honored to have on a very special guest today who is going to help all of us midlife women understand what our cardiovascular disease risks are, what we can do to prevent heart disease, what labs and tests to ask for from our doctors, and how menopause and menopause hormone therapy play a role in increasing or decreasing your risk. Dr. Garima Sharma is a cardiologist who received her internal medicine and cardiology fellowship training at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia. She was faculty at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and has served on the American College of Cardiology Fellow and Training Committee, Early Career Professional Committee, and the Women in Cardiology Leadership Council. She specializes in cardiovascular disease in women and preventive cardiology and is the director of women's cardiovascular health and cardioobstetrics at Innova Health System. Lastly, she is the governor of the Maryland chapter of American College of Cardiology. Ladies, we are in good hands today to fully understand the scope of heart disease. Just a little medical disclaimer before we begin. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or for making any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So sit back, open your mind, and let's dig into cardiovascular disease risk and midlife women. Welcome, Dr. Sharma. I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Jill. It's wonderful to be here with you. 
Thank you. I already read all your credentials to my community here, so we know all about you. But what we don't know is what propelled you to focus on cardiovascular disease and women's health. And so I would love to know your backstory on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, uh, you know, for me, it came from recognizing the disparities uh, in care. So when I was training to become a, a cardiologist, um, you know, I, I slowly started to recognize that as I was seeing these patients, women were presenting differently with heart disease. Um, and, and a lot of the traditional ways of assessing heart disease in women didn't really, didn't really apply um, as much as, as the men did. Um, as a training, I didn't have sort of that focus in mind when um, you know, I was choosing to do what I was trying to do. I was you know, just trying to be a great cardiologist. But as I joined practice, um, it became more and more clear that in my mind that women's heart disease is different. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it presents differently. And we just don't study women enough, um, especially in our clinical trials. So there's a disparity. And a lot of things that we apply to women are not necessarily tested in large randomized trials and in the women population, to be honest with you. So that's one. The second is, um, as I was pregnant, um, I unfortunately had some pregnancy complications uh, related to heart disease. And I was you know, really able to look at the care that I was getting through the lens of a patient for the first time. Mm. Um, and that became very personal for me because even though I was a medical professional and a cardiologist, there were certain um, gaps in care um, that I saw through the eyes or the lens of a patient. Um, and that made my commitment towards uh, becoming a better cardiovascular doctor for women mm. even more stronger because I recognize that even the most well-intentional medical professional, um, well-intentional clinician can only do so much. If they don't have the exposure to this type of nuances of cardiac care um, in women, they just don't know what they don't know. Um, and, and for some reason, um, you know, we just haven't been very good at studying sex-specific disorders. Um, especially in cardiac problems um, in pregnancy. And so that there is definitely a knowledge gap. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I think that studying women and treating women patients um, became so much more of a, of a passion and a commitment for me. I can't tell you how many uh, women doctors I've had on my podcast that have had similar experiences, not with cardiovascular disease, but with other health issues where they've now been the patient and seen from that perspective, and it propelled them into a little bit of a different direction and a little bit more of a deeper dive. And so not that I want any woman to go through any health issues, but um, thank goodness for doctors like yourself who see those gaps and just jump on board to be part of the solution. So thank you. For yeah, that. absolutely. I, I think it's, it's, you learn to have um, a special appreciation for patients who've had these problems. Um, and then you also learn to, as a scientific person, look at the gaps. Um, and you know, when you know the literature for cardiac disease or cardiology for a while, and you see the gaps, it, it sort of startles you that why weren't you paying attention to that anymore? So in some ways it's sort of 
um, right. you know, really makes you, your changes your lens a little bit. And I, I think for the better, I guess, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I think a, a personal story or a personal, um, you know, sort of uh, background sort of lends itself to even more um, deeper passion in this, in this space. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a midlife woman, I'm 55 and in menopause, and um, we're going to talk about the menopause cardiovascular disease um, connection a little bit later, but most of my clients who are around the same age as me and my friends fear getting breast cancer more than they fear getting cardiovascular disease. And cardiovascular disease is the number one killer for both men and women in the United States. Um, and so what is the conventional healthcare model getting wrong in your perspective? And where, where do we need to do that work to help it become more of, instead of sick care, more preventive care? Absolutely. So one of the first things I think all clinicians and patients should recognize is that menopause is a normal transition in a woman's life. That woman isn't sick. Right. You know, she's not crazy. Um, she's not anxious. She's going through a normal biological process, which is going to happen to her whether or not she has children. So, you know, it's just, it's going to happen. And I think recognizing for clinicians, and I think this is where we drop the ball, the different signs and symptoms of menopause and perimenopause, you know, and definition of what a menopause is needs to sort of change. We traditionally believe menopause is, okay, well, your last menstrual cycle or menstrual period, that's, that's menopause. But that's really not true. Women actually are perimenopausal and are having menopause symptoms way before um, they actually have their last menstrual period. And even beyond that, for about at least good, you know, seven to 10 years. Yep. So, you know, if you really look at and you add, add these numbers, it's about 15 years you know, 15, close to 20 years of a woman's life. That's a significant portion yeah. of that person's life. Um, and we just don't think of it that way. And we haven't traditionally thought of it that way in, in medicine. Um, and some women have, you know, mild symptoms and some women have very severe symptoms. Um, and they may present anywhere in that scale of, of uh, menopausal symptoms. So what can be the milder symptoms and what can be the very, you know, the very severe symptoms of hot flashes and vaginal dryness and, um, you know, just, just being horrible vasomotor symptoms, sweating up, getting in the middle of the night, drenching uh, with, uh, with sweat. Those are, those are very clear cut signs of menopause. But then there are some certain signs of menopause, which are Lack sleep. I mean, sleep disorders and sleep disturbances affect a significant portion of menopausal, perimenopausal, and postmenopausal women. Um, and sometimes is their predominant present presentation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, interrupted sleep, um, late sleep, multiple nocturnal awakenings, um, poor quality of sleep. And that sort of cascades down into um not feeling uh, very alert throughout the day or feeling tired or fatigued. And so sometimes fatigue and tiredness is, is a symptom. Um, but we don't really perceive fatigue and tiredness as a symptom in many individuals. What we're also recognizing, especially in the cardiovascular literature, a lot of women present for the first time with palpitations. 
Mm. Um, and, and we see that. Um, and it is because of fluctuations in hormones that they may have a more self-perception, um, you know, a heightened self-perception of palpitations. But it's also true that many times atrial fibrillation, which is a type of heart disease, presents it for, for the first time um, in that time frame. So I think first recognizing the time frame is broad. The symptoms are variable. Um, they can be subtle or they can be very overt. Um, and then also normalizing. The third most important thing is normalizing it for a woman and accepting that uh, perspective of patient, meeting the woman, woman or the individual where they are in their life and recognizing that this is a phase and, and physicians and internal medicine doctors and OBGYNs and even cardiologists have to be supportive as they're navigating through this uh, time frame, uh, because therapies, unfortunately, are limited, um, and you know we don't have the big you know chest of cardiac medications to throw at somebody you know in 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 a, in a menopausal woman or a menopausal individual. Um, so recognizing and and being as supportive as possible, and patient towards your patient, uh, because um, I think it's driving the many, many individuals to be very uh, uh, not trusting of doctors, right? So sometimes you have to build the trust. They don't trust you because you don't listen. Um, and, and, and it's very easy to blanketly say to a patient, oh, you know, you're just anxious. I can't tell you how many women get prescribed anxiety medications for just a physiological process. You know, this person does not have a history of full-blown anxiety. They're a completely normally functioning individual. And, you know, yeah, to tell you, Jill, this is the, the, the problem is that menopause hits women at when they're very productive in their life, right? They're, they're at a very productive phase in their life. Many have been, you know, in their professions for a good amount of years. They're, they're put in the hard work. They're put in the hours. Um, they've gotten the skill that they need. And they're really trying to perform and give their profession and their personal life their best. Right. Their kids are growing up or their, right. their dependents are growing up or they have family members that they are caregivers for. And when that individual doesn't feel well personally, it is very difficult for them to perform and be available 100% in their lives. Right. So then are you suggesting that now that physicians are opening their eyes up to this 15 to 20 year old, 20 year um, range of menopausal, perimenopausal symptoms to postmenopause, that the healthcare model needs to change along with it. And there's a really interesting poll out. It's um, the Harris poll from 2000. 19 or 2022, I forget. And it was saying how 70% of the people, people of people, just men and women feel failed by the healthcare system. Very, very true. I think there needs to be care pathways. Like you said, the health system, um, health systems, the systems of care um, need to recognize that this is actually a transition phase in someone's life. 
And how do we design and remodel healthcare to cater to this individual to make sure that this transition is safe, effective, and anxiety-free for this person, right? Because some women may be completely okay with hormone replacement therapy and take it and be quite fine and, you know, great. But then there are others who try it and don't do well or can't get it. Um, and so what do you do for those individuals? What can you provide them so that their life is not as disrupted by this? Um, and so I think you're right. Uh, there needs to be a redesigning of healthcare model or healthcare delivery model, where when, um, as we are following these individuals across their life course, when they are in this phase, we say, we're gonna let, we're gonna create a care pathway for you so that if you have, you may not have these symptoms, but if you have these symptoms, these are the few things that you could find at your disposal or you could get help from, whether it is a you know better lifestyle and hormone replacement therapy, uh, you know aggressive risk factor modification for those at elevated cardiovascular risks. Um, making sure that, you know, you have a better uh, physical plan, physical health plan, better sleep plan, um, and coming together from a multidisciplinary way. Um, it's not just OBGYNs, you know, sleep medicine doctors and internists and nutritionists and dietitians um, and alternative medicine uh, folks as well. You know, there's a lot of things out there um, some, sometimes women can't get hormone therapy and, you know, we don't prescribe right. them to them. So what do we do for those individuals? You know, right. Can right. we give them something and not just say, okay, enjoy your vasomotor symptoms for 10 years and we'll see you when you're 65. Um, and educating, especially for me as a cardiologist, because, you know, obviously I, ma I manage, I'll manage patients who are perimenopausal, who have cardiovascular risks. That's when they come see me. Right. Um, and, and saying, here's how I can truly assess your risk. Um, and I am very worried about you versus not that worried about you. And I will follow you along this time frame so that I'm keeping an eye on your symptoms or I'm keeping an eye on your risk symptoms and I'm managing your risk factors so that you can get the therapy that you need uh, so that transition is, is better. Now that we're talking about menopause and how it opens up the doors to cardiovascular disease risk. Let's just stay on, let's talk about HRT or um, menopause hormone therapy, M MHT. So the NAMS 2023 statement, so the NAMS is the North American Menopause Society, their 23 statement updated to say that women within a 10 year, uh, within 10 years of menopause who use menopause hormone therapy will benefit from reducing their CVD risk and that the benefits outweigh the risk. I think this is really important because there's always a risk benefit ratio to everything we do, every medication we take, every decision we make. And this is where it gets really um, confusing for so many women because we've been tra trained for many years to fear hormone replacement therapy for the risk of getting breast cancer. And not even talking really about the cardiovascular disease risk. Yes. So speak to uh, this community about this. Absolutely. This is, this is really, really important because what you've just touched on is the crux of menopause uh, management and hormone replacement therapy for women. 
But we can't talk about it until we talk about the Women's Health Initiative, which is what created this, um, it's not misguidance, what created this kind of pathway that we were on. And so the Women's Health Initiative was a very large NIH trial, clinical trial, because, you know, why did it come into being? Because doctors had been prescribing hormone replacement therapy um, in, in the 1960s and 1970s and 1980s to women all the time. It makes right. complete sense, right? You, you, estrogen and progesterone in, you know, are kind of in your body throughout your reproductive years. And as your reproductive years phase, you know, phase out, you know, the, the hormones, the ovaries that are responsible for creating these hormones obviously are atrophying with age. And so these hormones start to decrease in their availability in a woman's body. And that's predominantly what creates these symptoms of menopause. The, the lack of same level of estrogen and progesterone that the woman's been used to seeing for so many years. Um, and so recognizing that there was, you know, a normal intuition to replacing these hormones in a woman so that she would feel like they're still present in her body was, was the standard of care back then. But, but the folks that proposed the study perhaps thought it's never really been actually studied in a randomized trial. We've been doing it. Um, there's a lot of observational studies and stuff that it works, but have we actually studied this in two patient groups. So the Women's Health Initiative really looked at giving um, exogenous hormones um, to two types of patients. One is patients without a uterus who had some changes and had to have their uterus out versus patients who still had a uterus. Um, and the trial was stopped early and the headline of the trial became that the women who had um, estrogen with uh, conjugated equine estrogen with uh, with the or, you know with the progesterone ended up having higher risk of breast cancer. That kind of became the headline of, of the study. But I think there are nuances of this trial that people should remember. One, the patients that were randomized and were studied in this trial were actually much older right. um, than an average person who is perimenopausal. So the average age was 62, right? Right. So this is well beyond 10 years of menopause that we're talking about. There were also patients who didn't actually have symptoms. They were asymptomatic. Right. So you're testing something in a, in, in, in a person who is way beyond the testable age and who's largely asymptomatic. The type of hormones that were available at that time were, you know, were given. So it's obviously it's, you know, uh, synthetic progesterone we right. have bioavailable yeah exactly mm -hmm. so now we have better types of hormones and um we also have you know peripheral transdermal way of of giving these hormones so this this is what created the issue um if you and and since then there has been a lot more data that has come out that if you actually give it to an individual who's perimenopausal within the first 10 years of, of menopause, the, and, 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 the, and it's actually in this trial too, the women actually, they, and they divided these age groups into, you know, 45, 55, 55, 65, 65 plus. And they saw that the women who were in the first 10 years of menopause actually benefited yeah. 
they benefited in terms of less osteoporosis, less bone loss, better cardiovascular profile, everything else that completely is pragmatic. And you would think it's completely, you know, totally logical. It's the women that are postmenopausal by 60, you know, 65 years of age is, are the, uh, is that group that didn't benefit. And if that is the largest amount of group in the trial, obviously it's going to skew the data towards a particular time frame. Also, you know, understanding relative risk and absolute risk is important too, because absolute number of increase in breast cancer was still very low. Very low. And, and so we don't make our decisions based on relative risk. I mean, you compare one risk, one group, one subgroup with another subgroup, and you do a relative risk. Obviously, the, the women who got the progesterone and didn't have the uterus had a higher risk of breast cancer. Um, but if you really look at the absolute numbers of breast cancer in those groups, it actually was one or maybe right. two cases, right. which is exceedingly low right. to blow out this heightened risk of breast cancer. Right. But the biggest crux of the story was the women who were younger, who did not have risk factors, who generally were healthy, did so much better with hormone replacement therapy. And it's a sad thing because since that trial, practice, clinical practice changed dramatically where people yeah. were coming off hormone replacement therapy. Um, and I was in school during that time. And I can tell you that there was such a therapeutic inertia among um, clinicians mm. where treating somebody with hormone replacement therapy was such a big issue. Um, and so from, uh, you know, inertia is uh, on, on the part of the doctors. Well, you know, like, can you just bear with it? Like, can you just continue with it? Because I'm not sure about these. I really, and it was, the medical community was confused, to be honest with you. We didn't really know what to do. And since then, there has been more data and there's been subgroup analysis and another, you know, they really yeah. looked at this question in multiple, multiple studies and meta-analyses and, and it's, it's become very clear. Number one, hormone replacement therapy is of benefit, clear benefit to those with horrible vasomotor symptoms whose lives are dysfunctional. Night sweats, vaginal dryness, brain fog, weight gain, fatigue, um, it's, it's, you know, blood pressure issues. They're, they are of benefit. They help regulate it. They help patients gain the energy back. They help sleep um, and should be offered if your overall cardiovascular risk is low. Which brings me to the second point, assessment of cardiovascular risks. In general, if you haven't had a stroke, or a heart attack, and you have been following up with your primary care doctor, and you know your numbers, you know your blood pressure, you know your lipid panel, you know your BMI, you're not a smoker, you uh, you know don't have any other significant risks of premature coronary disease, you tend to be okay and qualify for this. Um, you should be talking to your cardiologist, or you should be seeing a cardiologist if you have some of these risk factors, if you have hypertension, 
that's not well controlled, or if you have obesity or bad uh, elevated cholesterol, you should be talking to your doctor and you should be getting an assessment and regular follow-up when you plan to go on it. But most women who are low risk, low to moderate risk of 20 years of developing atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease are, are in that time frame, 10 years menopausal, postmenopausal tend to benefit. And they should at least have a conversation uh, with their doctors. It's obviously a decision between the patient as to what they're comfortable with. Um, and as a cardiologist, we're, we're happy to go through your numbers and say, we don't see any elevated risks. You don't have any subclinical markers. We don't see an elevated CAC score. We think your cholesterol is okay and manageable. As long as you understand your blood pressure and your trajectories, you could be something, somebody who could qualify for this treatment. So what you're saying is so important because you're talking about all of these ways to assess one's risk of cardiovascular disease and it, not just aging, but you've mentioned some labs, you've mentioned some other tests that you can do, but what if your internist or your GP doesn't recommend any of those deep dive assessments for you and at an age where it matters? right? So when we talked about the conventional healthcare model being a sick, a sick care model and not a preventive care yeah. model, and you're mentioning all of these ways to assess risk, when do we start to assess risk as midlife women? When do we start, who, do we see a cardiologist? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that's a great question because most women are not going to say, I'm going to call my local cardiologist and, you know, I'm just going to go make right. an appointment with them, right? Like they're not going to right. do that. They're, they're going to go to their primary doctor and say, hey, can I get this? And if the primary doctor says no, or I don't think so, then that probably be the end of that conversation. Um, so I think you're you're 100% correct. So I, I think there, are, and this is something that we see in all of preventive care. Um, I think it's never too late to know your numbers, right? So in the pediatric population who are at risk, they recommend, you know, lipid panel in when they're babies, when they're when they're little children. I think our guidelines say, if you have a family history, if you have a family history, you have had a coronary event in either of your parent, in your father less than 65, mother less than 65 years of age, it's an event, either cardiovascular event, vascular event, or a stroke. That's a risk factor. And that person needs, needs to know their subclinical risk a little bit better. Because there is a lot of folks out there that have these elevated risks and they don't know about them. Um, second, be your own advocate, right? So lots of information on preventative care and what is preventative care. It's life essential eight. So these eight things you should know, and it doesn't matter what age you are. If you're 20s, you should know them. If you're in the 30s, you should know them. It's your blood pressure. It's your weight. It's your cholesterol. And if you haven't had a cholesterol by the time you're 30s, you should have one. Um, everybody. And if you're if you're if you have a cholesterol in, in, when you're in your 20s and it's normal, great. You can get one done in five, 10 years. But if if you if you're in your 30s and mid-30s and you haven't had a cholesterol, it should be a part of your health visit um, and should be offered. Um, to you, regardless of your risks. Um, do you smoke? 
Um, do you sleep seven to nine hours a day? How much physical activity are you getting? Um, in a week, you should be exercising at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise. Moderate intensity exercise is I went for a brisk walk. I went for a brisk walk. Um, I went for a jog. I did swimming. I played with my kids where I felt like I broke out into a light sweat where my heart rate was increased. It should be 150 minutes, ideally, greater than that if you can achieve it. Um, Absolutely. I do have to say that 150 minutes is a great place to start coming from a sedentary lifestyle, but it definitely is not enough to move the dial. So it's a good start, but you have to have a broader vision um, in terms of movement and work with someone who knows this area of expertise, who can help you find your own intrinsic motivation to keep going. Um, because I've asked these, I've asked professionals, um, in the fitness training area, I've asked them, what is the best form of exercise? And a couple of times I get back, it's the exercise someone's willing to do. And I always say, no, that's not right. Because if someone is just willing to go for a leisurely walk around their block, that's not good enough. That's not moving the dial for them. So I don't want to dive too deep in the exercise, but it's super important to work with people who are experts in these fields if you need help. Yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And you you have to feel that the physical intensity was more than what you regularly do. Right. And whatever you regularly do. So maybe you're somebody who just walks around the block. That's not like really exercise if you want to move the needle. you got to push yourself a little beyond that. Uh, add something else and so talk to people who are in that space but you've got to you've got to be able to have that appreciation of what are these factors and where am I in the metric when I'm looking at you know what is ideal where do I stand and so the American Heart Association actually has a really nice way to assess this are you in the green light are you in the red are you in the red zone are you in the like the orange purple whatever yellow zone. And if you are, then what are some things you can do to push yourself towards the green so that your numbers are more optimal? Um, And that you really are doing what actually propels your health into the optimal metrics for cardiovascular health. So that is my biggest recommendations to your audience that, you know, knowing that, and if it's suboptimal uh, or you've accrued one or more risk factors along the way, then you really sort of should say, can I have a consultation with a preventive cardiologist or with a preventive um, practitioner so that I can have a deeper dive into some of these risk factors? I think that would be um, sort of what standard of care recommends. So I want to talk about labs with you, but before that, I think it's really important for the listeners to really understand the structure of the vascular system um, in layman terms, you know, about cholesterol. So usually when we go to the doctor in the conventional healthcare model, we get a standard lipid test, which in my in my opinion, and you're the expert here, just doesn't seem to be enough anymore that we need to look deeper. But when we do get back that standard lipid panel, we usually have our total cholesterol, our HDL, LDL, C, um, our triglycerides, uh, maybe our non-HDL. Um, am I missing anything in that standard panel? No, no, that's yeah. <laughs> so, so give us a tour of what cholesterol is in the first place. I have so many questions about cholesterol. Let's just start with what is cholesterol, why it's important, 
why are people fearing it? And if we didn't have it, we wouldn't even be here. Yeah, absolutely. So, so cholesterol is an important particle in your body that is protective in lining your nerves and your nervous system. It's an extremely, it's, it's like a lubricant. Think about it as a lubricant. It helps um, streamline flow in many ways. And it's omnipresent. It's, it's, present, it's, it's present throughout your body system, throughout your life course. In fact, at the very beginning of your birth, it's one of the essential things that helps brain development, development of your nervous system. And if you do not have enough cholesterol, there are a lot of harmful effects um, of, of that as well. In terms of your standard panel and what you should be asking for, I think the numbers are divided to give you a holistic view of your quantifiable particles in your body. So quantity of certain type of cholesterol um, is helpful in telling you your aggregate total aggregate of what may be important. And dietary cholesterol and exogenous cholesterol, you know, it's, it's important that there are certain types of diet that are healthy in fat, that are important. They go to the liver, they process out of the liver, um, and they become your body's cholesterol. You have a total cholesterol, you have an LDL cholesterol, and you have an HDL cholesterol. And then the LDL cholesterol, which is the low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, and the high-density lipoprotein cholesterol is your HDL, are the two that I want to sort of focus a little bit on. The low-density lipoprotein cholesterol is a cholesterol particle that is sitting on your overall receptor and is basically modulating your cholesterol cycle. The low-density lipoprotein cholesterol is also one of those cholesterols that we assess your atherogenic risk. What is your atherogenic risk? Your ability to capture that cholesterol inside the lining of your heart arteries and develop a plaque. The low-density lipoprotein cholesterol has a tendency to seep inside arteries that are damaged arteries that can be damaged by smoking, by alteration in the lining of the arteries or the intima, which we call the lining of the arteries, or by shearing forces, such as elevated blood pressure. That seeps inside and gets trapped inside the heart arteries. And once it gets in there, there's no way for it to escape. So you mentioned that LDL is there's a genetic component to this. Are you referring to like the LP little a? Yes. Yes. So the LP little a or lipoprotein a. So what are lipoproteins? So lipo is lipids and protein is the protein attached. Mm -hmm. it's, right. it's a particle that has both. So this LP, what, what we recognize over the past few years is that the LP little a tends to be a nidus, tends to be a focus for other cholesterol particles that are happily traveling with this LP little a along, along your body, right? So it has the APOB, which is a part of it, uh, attached to it, the apolipoprotein A. These are all little tentacles, if you were to look at the particles that are sticking out from this LP uh, lipoprotein A. What we are seeing in our studies is that in the last maybe 10 years, um, 
that LP Lily has come out to be like an established marker of one's genetic um, manifestation of elevated cholesterol. Uh, and, and, to, and a better way to put it is that in those individuals who have a family history or premature coronary disease or really bad coronary disease at a very early age, we're finding that this particle tends to be elevated. And the funny thing about LP little a is that our conventional drugs like our statin medications and lifestyle medications don't really do much to it. Um, in fact, they're not very effective in, in getting this number down because it is, it is a genetic problem. Patients with uh, familiar hyperlipidemia that have a certain type of genetic modification in their, you know, that increases their ability to capture cholesterol and not, you know, and just not modulate cholesterol as well, tend to have a higher level. Um, so the, the other thing is, you, once you get an LP little a, you don't need to frequently keep getting another LP little a level with your other cholesterol labs because it's a one-time drug. It's a one-time mm. level. So once you check it, no matter what, how many exercise, how much exercise, how much diet, weight loss, and statin you're doing, it's not going to really matter because it tells you your life. It tells you your one-time risk. Mm. It is important to know that there are newer drugs like the PCSK9 inhibitors, which are these injectable drugs that have been shown to have a marvelous way of reducing these numbers. So we think that in addition to your cholesterol panel, if you are a candidate for higher risk assessment, for example, if you have a history of familial cholesterol abnormalities in your in your um, life uh, in your family, mother, which is which is very high cholesterol, very high cholesterol in your family, your first degree relative your mother, your father, your brother um, had this diagnosed, you should have a panel with an LP little a. Um, if you've had a strong family history, some people don't get their uh, genetic testing done, so we don't know whether they have a genetic problem. Um, many people, but many people understand their family history and they can tell you that my grandfather had a heart attack when he was 52. My grandmother had a heart attack when she was 62. My father had a heart attack when he was 55. If you have a strong family history of premature coronary disease, you should get an LP little a because that is a way to screen you for a genetic problem. Now, would, um, only, a, would only a cardiologist ask these questions and order this test because I can't tell you how many women I have worked with and I help coach them on talking to their physicians to get the proper labs that they need. Right. And yeah. I can't tell you how many times they come back and their physician just crosses everything out. And some of the things they cross out are LP little a and APO B. Yeah. You do not need a cardiologist to get these tests done. Okay. Many places are actually ordering this on top of their cholesterol panel. I can tell you that a lot of cardiologists will order this. Um, a lot of cardiologists that are involved in preventive care will order this. 
If you had a heart attack and in your 40s, in your 50s, and you see, you see your family doctor, they should be ordering this because you may be the index person that they diagnose. That, may, that is how they diagnose familial high cholesterol in your entire family. Um, and so you don't need a cardiologist to order this. Um, I think, you know, clinical practice always lags behind guidelines yeah. for about a good amount of 10 years. Yeah. Um, the blood cholesterol guidelines were updated in 2018. I am hoping that uh, the next generation of clinicians that come out probably recognize the importance of just adding this on. You don't have to get any new type of lab done. It's the same blood test. Right, right. The lab can run the same thing at the same right. time. You don't have to refast or anything, you know? So are you saying that <clears throat> someone in their 20s who knows that they have, you know, two to four relatives who have died at an early age from stroke, heart attack, whatever, cardiovascular disease, they should absolutely in their twenties, go to their doctor or a cardiologist and have this LP little a number taken. Yes. I, 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 because now we're talking about preventative cardiovascular disease risk and not sick care. Yes. They're, they're not sick. First of all, they're not sick yet. If they understand their risks and they get diagnosed with a condition that is preventable, right? If, if they can get treated for this condition in their 20s, they're not going to be their father or their mother or their brother. And the, the, they're going to get the benefit of the number of years of preventive care, which we don't actually really see in most people because most people don't enter the cardiac system as a healthy visit. Right. We see, we see almost all 90% of our patients are secondary prevention when they've already had an event. Either they have heart failure or they've had a stroke or they've had heart disease of cardiac coronary disease. And unfortunately, at that point, all we do is maintenance. Um, you know, we can't really change or alter their risks um, so, beyond a so- certain point. One lab test that I've had done early on was to find out if I was a hyperabsorber because I had some high cholesterol. And this was maybe 10 years ago. So I've known for quite a long time. And I take um, a drug for that, Zetia. And can you just explain what a hyperabsorber is? Because we've touched on dietary cholesterol, but let's go back to that because I think this is also a really important test and can help people pivot their lifestyle in a different direction if needed based on this result. Let me, let me ask you this. When, when did you get this test and were you offered this test conventionally? No. So I was with a functional medicine doctor. Um, and when I had a, some labs done one year, she knows my cholesterol was very high and I do have a family history. My dad did die from cardiovascular disease. And so did my uh, grandmother and my grandfather. So she went ahead and got the cholesterol balance test from Boston heart. I think they're one of the only ones that do it. Maybe there's another lab. I'm not sure. Um, but this is not a lab that most conventional doctors would ever take. They don't look at sterols. And I thought it was really important because I've been on this medication for 10 years now. Yeah. It drastically helped me. Yeah. It it actually, yeah. In your case, um, doing that test helped you. So the question is which person should we actually do this in? So you're the kind of person that actually you should do this in test in because you have a genetic 
we think you have a family risk. We think you're going to be on a statin medication for a long time. Currently, that is what is standard of care for you, right? We're not going to give you PCSK9 unless we actually- Well, I'm not on a statin though. I'm just on ZDA, yeah. Yeah, because I think putting you on- Statin. So hyperabsorbers, I mean, of, of what I know in this literature, and please, I don't want to give you any misinformation, is that these are patients with elevated risk. They have total high total cholesterol, they have high LDL cholesterol, but for some reason, when they're given statin therapy uh, for a short period of time, it doesn't really change their numbers a whole lot. Right, right. And, and it is probably because their metabolic profile is such that the statins have a certain receptor on their cholesterol, on their liver, which is some, for some reason not very effective in these individuals. And so they give you additional li- lowering therapy or an additional lipid lowering drug like a Zidia to lower your cholesterol. Is that, is, is that what uh, conventional exactly. idea is? Yep. But the problem is not a, all of us actually think about hyperabsorbers in um, our general population because most of our general population that comes to us are not coming in for preventative care. They're coming in for secondary prevention. At that point, the event has already occurred. So at that time, they when we put them on a statin and it doesn't work, we have a whole slew of other drugs in our armamentarium that we can add um, like benvedoic acid or PCSK9 or Zidia or other types of medications. So um, without giving you any more misinformation, I think, um, you know, I, I, I think that that may be an essential test, especially for individuals um, uh, like you. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know what a hyperobserver means, it means that my body has a really difficult time getting rid of cholesterol. So you don't want cholesterol to recycle back into your body. You know, we get rid of cholesterol through, um, you know, pooping, right. Or just excess cholesterol. And so I have, it, it happens, I believe in your gut where you absorb some cholesterol. Most people absorb somewhere between 10 and 15% of their dietary cholesterol. If I didn't take this medication, I would absorb a lot more, which would make my circulating cholesterol in my uh, bloodstream much higher than it should be. So this is, this is nothing that I can ever change through diet. Um, It's, I have to be on this pill for the rest of my life and it's fine. It doesn't have any adverse side effects and it has helped me continuously remain in optimal ranges on my cholesterol panel. So it's called uh, a cholesterol balance test from Boston Heart. And the only way that I know that you can get it is from a functional medicine doctor, not through conventional medicine, unless of course they think you need it. Yeah, okay. That's absolutely true. True. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's pivot to testing one's risk. So we've talked about all these different tests. So let's go back to the standard panel. So you're saying take the standard panel, but now you're what's being recommended is adding on things like ApoB and LP little a, and the LP little a is um, a genetic factor. You really need to only look at it once and to know, yes. and then ApoB go into ApoB. We didn't talk about that one. ApoB is similar. Um, these are particles that are kind of attached to the um, overall lipoprotein particle. These are also particles that help us understand your elevated risks. Um, they're similar to LP little a in the sense that you don't keep checking them because they're telling you your overall risks. 
at that snapshot, but they aren't really going to change a whole lot with your therapies. And, that, and they are not targets for conventional therapy. They're a target for assessing your risk and giving you more information about your subclinical risk as to what could be your overall lifetime risk or 10-year risk of developing heart disease that a normal cholesterol panel doesn't tell you. Um, and I, I foresee these factors being included more and more into our clinical practice as patients come in for routine preventative care because it's easy to get. It's a one-time thing. You don't keep checking it. Um, and it allows us to um, sort of get a, a, a much better picture of an individual's total cholesterol panel and subclinical, uh, you know, these subclinical biomarkers that you don't have coronary disease yet, but you have an ele elevated LPLA. So you are actually at a higher risk right. than somebody who doesn't have that. Um, and so knowing that sort of helps modify your risk category in some way. Yeah. Let's talk about CAC scans. Um, I, I've had this once about five years ago. I think it's a really meaningful test to add in, especially uh, I was a carnivore at the time. So I was eating a lot of animal-based proteins. Um, and obviously with a family history of, um, of cardiovascular disease, my doctor was a little concerned. And I said, I'm going to show you, I'm going to take this test and everything's going to be fine. I actually had a score of zero, which is a perfect score, but Tell us a little bit about what a CAC scan is, why it's useful in, in assessing one's risk for cardiovascular disease, and when you should get it in terms of preventative healthcare. Absolutely. I think it's a really important question. And I want to let your audience know that I am I have no industry, um, you know, uh, connections. I'm not seeing right. this because I have some vested interest. I don't have any stocks in Siemens or GE or Philips or anything. I'm not getting any kickbacks. <laughs> Um, I think it's important to know that calcium has stood the test of time. Uh, we've had this test now close to 25 years um, in terms of repeatedly telling us what we don't know. So if you have coronary calcium or calcium in your coronary bed or cardiovascular bed, you have cardiovascular disease. Yes. You just don't know it because it hasn't presented itself as a heart attack or a stroke, but it's there. And at some point, it's going to continue to increase unless you do something about it or alter your trajectory of your life and will present itself as a heart attack or stroke. That we do know. We've studied this. The value of CAC is that it gives you an ability, it's, it gives you a window into your vascular health, the cardiovascular health. If you have no calcium and your calcium score is zero, which means there is no hard calcium or calcium that has gotten inside the heart arteries and stuck in there, and you have an opportunity to really focus on prevention mm -hmm. because if your numbers look bad and your calcium score is zero, you have time to work on yourself. Right. Many patients and doctors use this as a decision tool. Mm. It's a decision tool. 
many times folks are hesitant to take statin therapy. They have risk factors for heart disease. They have diabetes, um, you know, uh, and they have elevated cholesterol for about maybe, you know, a few years. They have a family history. And they may see a doctor, a preventive medicine doctor or a preventive cardiologist and say, well, why should I be in a statin? You're calculating my atherosclerotic risk and it isn't, you know, I don't have diabetes. It's not that high. Why can't I just go take my blood pressure medications and exercise more? Right. That's when offering a calcium score is important because it's a subclinical marker of disease. If your calcium score is not zero or is elevated, greater than 100 in most cases, it allows you to understand that even though I have these risk factors, now I actually have heart disease and I need to drive my cardiovascular risk to the lowest possible number as possible. If you have a calcium score of zero, you do not need to repeat your calcium score next year or a year afterwards or the year afterwards. It tells you that you have a window of opportunity, which, you know, about five, five to six years yep. where you can really work on your risks. And if your risks aren't altered, the likelihood of calcium being there is there. Because if you had high blood pressure or you didn't change anything, ultimately you're going to develop some subclinical markers. But if you really worked on everything possible, your numbers are as low as possible, your cholesterol is well controlled, there's no benefit in, in really repeating calcium score. You can do it, and, but it doesn't, it won't change anything. You're already doing it anyway. So, so it, it, to me, it's a decision tool because seeing is believing. Many times when patients see that, mm-hmm. it changes their perspective because they say, well, I don't want to have a heart attack now. I, I, I'm, I'm going to work on this because this is true. Um, and that's, I think, the, the power of that, that number, um, you know, and in, in cardiovascular literature, they call it the power of zero, which is if you have zero, it, it helps you defer treatment in many cases, right? It tells you, you don't really need to step in. But if it's not zero, um, it allows you to recommend it more aggressively. Um, and it is a simple test. Um, it's an easy test to get. It, it's you you're not getting super radiated your body's not no. lighting up with anything you go into an office you ask for you know you get a CAC score you basically don't even get any dye in your body it's no, just nothing. a regular ct scan they're just running you through the ct scan yeah and they're seeing seeing where it is um and they're giving you a very good number which is your number and you yeah. you know that that's your risk that's your subclinical number so Many folks actually uh, greatly see the benefit in doing something as simple. It's not expensive. Right. Many times, if you have good insurance, it, it's generally covered. And even if it's not covered by insurance, it's anywhere between $65 to $120, depending on where you live. I live in downtown Chicago. It cost me $49 out of pocket. Yeah. Took it, five minutes. It's, it's a five-minute test. Yep. And there is really no harm in it. And it, many times it will help you defer treatment. Like, like I said, lots of people right. will say, you know what? I'm, I, I feel better now um, trying to really work my work on myself. And many times that 
appears to be enough for patients to say, I don't want to be in just another statistic of heart disease. I'm going to sort of use this number to change my life. And I agree with you that testing is so crucial for so many people. It doesn't work for everybody. Some people don't want to know the information because then they have to do something about it, right? But for most of the people, for all of the people that I work with, all of my midlife women clients, I put them through a lot of testing. We look at genetics. We look at micronutrient status. I have them all of my clients have to work with an MD and they have to get extensive labs through their MD. And if that MD isn't willing to do it, I help them find an MD who will, who's more open-minded because I want them to capture all the data, get the full story of your health, and then make an informed decision. You don't have to do anything about it, but if you have the data in front of you, you're more likely to pivot your lifestyle in a direction that's going to help support your, your greater health goals. And when you're a midlife woman, like you were saying earlier, we're at this great time in our life and we still have a third of our life left, right? We have all of my five kids are out of the house. Um, I don't have to make lunches anymore. No one's getting ready for camp. I know you have younger ones, so you're in the middle of that. Um, but it's a really freeing time in our life and we should absolutely feel our best. And there's really no reason not to get, um, not to pivot our lifestyle in a direction to help support yes. us feeling our best in this time. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. These are tests, these are tests that are available. They're at your dispense. If you ask for it, most women will get it because it, they're not like, you know, extensive, aggressive tests in any way. When I'll give you an example, um, I was offered, I, I was offered to, um, you know, basically assess somebody's cardiovascular risk prior to hormone replacement therapy. This is a woman who, who had had um, um, a sort of like, um, you know, heart attack in her 40s, uh, early 40s. And she was seeing her gynecologist. Um, I don't have, I didn't have, when I saw her, I didn't have her coronary scans. I didn't have a whole lot of information. I was seeing her in the community. Um, she had horrible ways of water symptoms and it was really bothered by it. And I was asked to say, well, is it okay for her to start hormone replacement therapy? Now, I'm not going to be somebody who's going to say, well, you, you know what, um, let's do uh, angiogram to see where, what's the extent of her heart disease, right? That is the kind of person you probably could do a CAT score in because you do, some, you do something like that. And here's the thing, her CAT score was zero. Um, and, and I was so, um, I did an, you know, a conventional labs, which came out to be normal. I checked her blood pressure. I made sure she didn't have diabetes. I did a CAT score on her. I even said, would you like to exercise? And, you know, see what you do on an exercise treadmill stress test. Do you want to do that? And, you know, it was like, sure. She had a normal exercise treadmill stress test. This is someone I was completely happy saying. She's, I'm going to keep watching her. I don't see any elevated risk. I'm not sure where this history of coronary disease came from. It can't, you know, it's not some, she did not have a dissection or any kind of event like that. Maybe something that got carried on to her charts. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, and, you know, and I think sort of assessing an individual personally and making sure that you're doing the due diligence and trying to really uh, assess their cardiovascular risk, all that takes. And she came back to see me in about eight months and she was on HRT and she feels like a different person. Wow, that's amazing. You know, and it really helped her get back to where she wanted to be. And it's, right. 
it's a very it's a very simple thing that we can do. Um, again, if you've had a stroke or you've had a major coronary event, you probably should not be on it. And then you know there definitely discuss alternatives with right. doctors who can help you. You don't have to be somebody who gets nothing. Uh, but if you are at low risk, um, and if you don't really know your risk, and you know you, there is misinformation or misguidance, then you can sort of restart this wheel and re sort of assess the risk and make that decision at that point. Well, Dr. Garma, it was such a lovely conversation to have with you. It's a tough conversation to have, but something that we all need to talk about, especially during this menopausal transition. Um, what are three of the top takeaways you'd like to leave our listeners with today in regards to cardiovascular disease? Absolutely. For women, know that the cardiovascular disease presents um, differently, can present differently in women. Um, you know, you can have the conventional, you know, chest pain, or you can have other symptoms that are masked by, you know, by different types of pain. If you don't feel right, or if you don't feel yourself, if your exercise capacity has changed, if you're more fatigued, if you have more exercise intolerance, if you don't feel like yourself, you should talk to your doctor and take, and many times, you know, women are not believed. Um, so take somebody with you who can reinforce your symptoms um, at, at those visits because it will lead to you getting at least screened or tested. That's number one. Number two, Menopause is not a small duration in your life. It's a, it's a significant amount of time. Yep. And it will ebb and flow in terms of how you're feeling. Um, and I think recognizing it's a part of your life and making sure you're comfortable with clinicians and providers who recognize it is important. I think that is the challenge for patients because you have to really learn to be your own advocate. And number three, um, Hormone replacement therapy can be offered to patients with low risk of cardiac disease. And with those with elevated risk of cardiac disease, please speak to a cardiologist who takes care of patients um, with cardiac problems um, uh, and, you know, in, during menopause and see a specialist so that you get a very personalized plan for your care. And remember that timing matters. T timing don't, don't absolutely wait. matters. Don't, do not wait and, and don't suffer in silence. Yeah. Well, thank you. So where can people find you? Are you on social media? Yes. Um, I have a Twitter handle. Um, I am at Garima We Sharma MD. And um, I, I can't say I'm a very prolific tweeter, but you will... <laughs> Uh, I, I would like to be, but, you know, I, I sometimes get caught up in how many um, words I'm allowed and then it doesn't oh, turn out. Now, now you can go to threads, which I, I haven't know, started I yet, know, but just to add one more, you know, fire in there for I, us. I, I was like, somebody needs to manage my account because I, yeah. can, I could be tweeting a lot more, but yeah. I, you'll find me tweeting a lot about cardiac problems uh, in women and, uh, you know, generally focus a lot on uh, what new articles are out there and what patients could really benefit from. 
That's awesome. I will put all of this in the show notes. Thank you again so much for joining me on the podcast. And um, I know that everyone's going to walk away with some golden nuggets and hopefully incorporate some new tests and new conversations in their healthcare and their preventative healthcare plan. Thank you for having me, Jill. It was such a great time. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.